Hi there, this is Darren Spoo, pastor at First Baptist Church in Tulsa, and welcome to our weekly message podcast. We would invite you to join us in person Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock in downtown Tulsa, or check out our webpage at tulsafbc.org. God bless you, and have a great week. Good morning. Um, as Dave said, I get a chance to share with you guys. Um, before I do, I just want to say I spoke at the first service, and after I spoke, I, I was thankful I received some words of encouragement, and then even coming into this service, many of you guys I know and have encouraged me, but the two that stood out the most, um, very uh, different, but I want to say Henry uh, Fisher said, don't mess up today, so there's that end of it, and then Jackson, one of our students, said, you got this. So I'm hoping to fall somewhere in between, don't mess up, and you got this this morning. So thank you guys for your words of encouragement this morning. Um, and we're going to be continuing through the Sermon of the Mount, and, I, and I'm thankful Darren asked me to speak. I got an opportunity uh, this fall, if you didn't get the chance, I got an opportunity to speak in the fall, Darren asked me, and then he invited me again, so I guess that is a good sign. But we're going to continue to work through the Sermon of the Mount. We're going to be in... Matthew chapter 5, if you would like to go ahead and turn your scripture there. If you didn't bring your Bible, that's all right. The words will be on the screen. Matthew chapter 5, um, verses 17, and we're going to go all the way through 32 when we read, but we're going to spend a lot of time in the beginning of those. Um, and as you're turning your scripture, I just will say when Darren and I were talking about this and he said, hey, would you like an opportunity to teach? I know you enjoy teaching. I said, yeah, absolutely. He said, you'll be continuing through the Sermon on the Mount. That's okay. I said, great. Will I be in the Beatitudes? Where will I be? And he said, actually, I'll be finishing up the Beatitudes. You're going to be on Christ coming to fulfill the law. You're going to be in anger, murder, lust, and divorce. And I said, great. Thank you for that. Um, but really, it's just worked out that way. And I'm going to spend a lot of time in the beginning of those, like I said, working on the fulfillment of the law, um, legalism, and then anger and murder and hatred of the heart and unity of believers. And then Darren's going to intro a little bit of the end of those at the end. Um, but I want to read them together and then pray over them, and then we'll dive in. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 is where we'll start. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Verse 21. It says, You have heard that it is said to those of the old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with a brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults a brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering a gift at the altar, an altar, and remember that a brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Verse 27, you have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks with a woman looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the members of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Verse 31. It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for on the grounds of sexual immorality, make her makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray over these scriptures, and then we'll walk through them together. You guys bow with me. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for the opportunity to teach your word. God, I pray that you continue um, just to be upon me, be upon my lips and my heart, and let me speak what is true and what is right in your word. Father, I pray for the people in the room, people online, as we hear your words. Lord, I pray whether it's a moment of conviction, a moment of recognition, Father, that we can take this step forward, and whether it's reconciliation, it's repentance, whatever you're calling us into, God, I pray that you continue just to place that on the hearts of each and every individual. As we walk through your word today, be with us today. Send your Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're going to jump back and walk through these, but before we do, I just want to make a statement on these verses, as you can see, they're pretty clearly broke down into four sections, right? You have what the beginning is Christ coming to fulfill the law. You're working through kind of legalism, religion versus relationship. Then you have anger, hatred, murder. Um, you have disunity among believers. And then you have lust and divorce. And I just want to make two statements on these. The first one is, as we're reading the scripture, if God calls you to something, the Holy Spirit prompts you in any way, whether it's to a point of confession or recognition or maybe, maybe even reconciliation, as we're going to talk about with a brother and sister in Christ, I just want to encourage you to act upon that. Don't wait on that as the Holy Spirit, as the Lord puts that in your mind and your heart and you begin to think about these things. Um, act on these things and let the Lord work on you starting right away as we hear them. And then the second thing I want to say is these, this is a tough section of Scripture. And, it, and there's still more Scripture after this in the weeks to come as Jesus is speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. It's tough for us to take in to hear. And the reason being because many of us have been in all of these or a lot of these situations, some of us multiple, some just singular. But I want to encourage you and I want to say um, with confidence that myself, I know Darren would echo this, our church, our leadership, if you're at a place that you're struggling with this legalism or you're struggling with this hatred and this anger and this disunity among believers, or maybe you're someone that lust has taken you by um, just the stronghold and it's captivated your life and that sin is overcoming you. Or maybe you're at a place where you've been divorced, you're, you're currently going through divorce, or you feel like divorce is in your future based on your current relationship. I want you to know there's no condemnation, there's no judgment, there's no shame in these. This, this scripture is meant to give truth to your life, to breathe life into you, to give you grace, and to meet you right where you are with that mercy and that grace and allow the Lord to work on you. So I want you to know these are hard passages, and a lot of times when we hear these or someone talks to us about these, our immediate response is to disconnect because we think, well, we're being judged. This is hard. But a lot of time, that's the Holy Spirit convicting us, saying, here's an area of your life that I want to meet you. I want to love you. I want to help you take a step forward and walk in righteousness with the Lord. So I want to encourage you in those things today. Act upon them, but also receive every bit of God's word with truth and with grace today. So let's start in verse 17. And we're going to walk through, I promise not every one of these verses. We'd be here a while. Um, but the majority of it we'll spend in the first text. So let's go back to verse 17. 
<coughs> As Christ is talking about him coming to fulfill the law, let's just read the first one. It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. So the first thing we need to see in verse 17 um, is Christ makes a pretty strong statement. He's not here to abolish the law. He's here to fulfill the law. The first thing we need to recognize is that Christ has a high view of scripture, the law. Based on the Old Testament, the law that was written in the first five books, the Torah, that this is what he's referencing, that Christ has a high view of scripture. Now, if Christ has that high view, let's just go ahead and say it. we need to have an equally high view of Scripture. But what he's letting us know is that he isn't here to abolish the law. In fact, he's going to fulfill the law. He has a high view of the law, of the text, of the prophecies, of the Scripture. And you think, why does Jesus need to even come tell us that he's not here to abolish the law? He's here to fulfill the law. Why does that need to be mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount? It's because many people, there's a lot of different um, speculations or reasons or different theologians would say, but the majority of them would say because a lot of people were coming and saying, well, Christ or whoever the Messiah is, is going to come and they're going to abolish and take away this law as soon as they're here. They're going to forego the prophecies. That was some theories or others would say it is almost impossible and it's hard for people to believe that someone's going to come and fulfill all these hundreds of laws, live by them, walk by them, not mess up any of them, and then teach them to other people. It's also hard for them to believe that someone's going to come and fulfill all of these prophecies that have already been spoken. And they're not only going to fulfill them, they're going to live them out. They're going to see them come to life. So Jesus, in the beginning, makes a clear statement. For any of you that think I'm here to abolish or change or redirect the prophecies or the law that are spoken in the Old Testament, I have not come for that reason. I'm here to fulfill them. And we see that, such a powerful thing that Jesus not only lives by the law and teaches the law, but he also fulfills every prophecy that was spoken, those before he was born here on earth. What a powerful thing that Jesus does. He comes and he says, I am here to fulfill the law. He says, we got that out of the way. Let's, let's jump into 18. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the next thing we see here is Jesus has first said he views scripture highly and he's here to complete it. Now he's speaking with authority and he's speaking with power. And this is important for us for many reasons. One, this is our Savior, which our entire faith is based on, right? On Jesus being 100% who he is. So he speaks with this authority, so it's important for us to recognize the authority and the power that Jesus has here. But it's also important for us to see the, or read the room that was there at the Sermon on the Mount. There was a lot of religious leaders. There was Pharisees and scribes, as we see later in Scripture we're going to talk about. But they're there, and they have authority as well, right? But their authority is different. Their authority is given to them by counsel, by men, by an ordination process. We're going to talk a little about that in here in a second. But these men, these religious leaders, have this authority. So Jesus is coming to first let us know that all authority is in his name, but also to establish that the authority he speaks on is greater than the authority that they have seen before, the greater than the authority that's around them. They have not seen this authority yet. And what I love is that Jesus is teaching right here, and we're going to see it, with authority that is given to him by God. The authority that the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of the times, the authority that they spoke with was given to them by other men. Jesus is not speaking on authority by men, but of God. 
And the first statement he says is, for truly I say to you. That's probably familiar to most of you. You've heard that. It's in this text a couple times. It's going to be in text later as Darren walks through the Sermon on the Mount. That truly I say to you. This is a very authoritative text right here. What he's saying, that translates to, it's 100% true. It's an amen is what it really translates to in the original text. That this is everything I'm about to say that's going to follow this statement is 100% true. It can't be changed. It's not contradicted. It is a statement with all, all authenticity. Authenticity. There's a tough one. It's perfect and true. So Jesus says this with his authority. So let's see if he says something for truly I say to you. We know that whatever comes is coming with a lot of power and authority. What does he say? Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. That statement right in the beginning, heaven and earth pass away, can also be translated until the end of the ages. So what he's saying is, I tell you with all authority, Truly, I say to you, with all truth out there, until the ends of ages, Scripture is not going to change. The Old Testament is not going to change. The law is not going to be changed. The prophecies are not going to change until it is established. We know that establishment came, right, on the cross when the old law was fulfilled. All the old prophecies were fulfilled and a new law was established in Jesus' name. But right here we see he says heaven and earth, the idea that until the end of the ages, that after this natural world, Scripture's going to go after it. But what he gives is some emphasis on this, right? He says not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law and all of its accomplishments. The word iota is not only fun to say, but it also has a really important meaning there. The iota, it's, it's a Hebrew translation of the smallest letter in the Hebrew, Hebrew alphabet, also known as a yod, um, a yod. And so I was looking up different ways to pronounce it. My Hebrew is not perfect and even not existent, really, is what I could say. But it says yod, and I looked at some other ways to say it, and they say yoid. And so however it's pronounced, I believe yod is closer to the Hebrew translation. The reason I remember that is I was like, how am I going to remember the difference in yod and yoid? So I went with Yod because Yod, Yoda, Yoda. So that's a, that's a small stab at Darren for being a Star Trek fan. But um, the Yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So he says not an iota, not a Yod is going to be changed. But he also says a dot, which we know is one of the smallest forms of punctuation in our language. Some of the scripture, and if you're reading, I think the NIVs up there, it talks about a, a mark or a smudge, some of your scriptures may say. There's an emphasis, what Jesus is saying, that not even the smallest letter, the smallest punctuation, the smallest smudge, the smallest form of anything inside of this is gonna change. I'm not here to change the prophecies and scriptures. I'm here to fulfill them. What a powerful statement. Can you imagine Jesus comes up, he's born, he comes on the scene, and they, they, they see this Messiah and Jesus looks and says, wow, all these prophecies before my birth here on earth, these laws were written before here, these are tough. There's hundreds of laws. These prophecies are difficult. I don't know if I'm going to be able to uphold these. I'm going to alter or change these. Now, he has the authority to do so, but what's more powerful? Jesus saying, yes, all these things that were before me, I'm going to fulfill and you're going to get to see them with my life. Or Jesus saying, let me just change these a little so we can fit what we like, fit our view, fit our culture. 
No, Jesus says, I'm not here to change anything. I'm here to uphold it, to fulfill it, and to prove to you that I am all 100% God. I have authority and I have all power to do so. It's, an, it's a huge statement. And the reason it's so important, because this is kind of the foundation that Jesus lays in the Sermon on the Mount as he walks us through difficult things like anger and lust and divorce and loving your enemies and upholding an oath that we're going to see in weeks to come. This is the foundation for God to say, not only do I hold scripture to high view, but I've come with all authority and all power. I'm not here to change it. I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to lead by example. I'm going to walk with this, and I'm going to show you that I am who I said I am, the Messiah here on earth. And then what he says right here in verse 19, following, following that, he says, therefore, that therefore, connecting these two sentences together to let you know he's made this powerful statement of authority, he says, therefore, speaking on the law, whoever relaxes of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So this is a pretty serious statement from the Lord right here, right? It's serious in two areas. He gives us like serious consequences. For those of you that don't follow the word of God and teach all that I've commanded and that you don't obey the scriptures and in fact you teach others not to obey scripture as well, he says you will be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. That's a serious consequence that Jesus lays out to us as believers. But then he also promises a serious reward, right? He says, but for those of you that do your best that uphold the word of God with all of its authority, have a high view of scripture, are intentional to follow all the commands and all the things God has commanded you. When you do that and teach other people, you will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. Man, what a powerful promise we have right here with Jesus that we could be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's real easy if I were to lay it out and say, okay, believers, okay, people, if we, would you rather be considered least in the eyes of God in the kingdom of heaven or great in the eyes of God in the kingdom of heaven? It's real easy. And I hope and pray all of us would say we would like to be considered great. Not in a boastful way, but that's why we exist, to glorify God, right? So we want to be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, the scripture's clear. What do we have to do? Obey God's word and teach others to do the same. Now I stand here saying that a whole lot easier, right? All of you know that, and you know that it's not that black and white. You're like, oh, cool. That's all we needed in this whole world? Thank you. And we walk away doing it. There's a lot to that. And there's a lot of commands that God calls us into. A lot of laws that we know in the new, the new established law that we are to uphold. But here's what I believe, that if you were to take everything that God commands us, it can be wrapped up in this. You and your life are called to pursue righteousness and pursue holiness. Nowhere in Scripture does God call us pursue perfection, right? We know that he is perfect. And if we were to pursue perfection, we would fall every single time. We are called to pursue holiness and righteousness. An easier way to say that is we are called to do good and honor God with every part and every ounce of our life. Leverage all that we have, people, for the kingdom of God, for the gospel. Do all that we have or use all that we have for God's glory. And then once we're doing those and obeying those, teach those to other people. The word teach here is not just with our words or with an audible teach, standing from a stage in a community group, leading. It's both teach with words and with your lifestyle. So it gives us a warning. If you're not following God's word, 
and you're living a lifestyle that's not following God's word and you're leading people away from it, you could be considered the least in the kingdom of God. But if you are following God's word, not getting it perfect, but doing your best to submit your life to scripture, to walk in an honorable manner, pursue this righteousness, and then you're teaching others to do the same with the way you live your life, the way you parent, the way you love your enemies, the way you treat people, the way you lead your family, the way you act at work, when you are teaching people with both your actions and your words, you will be considered the great and great in the kingdom of God. What an incredible promise we have before us. So then he says this in 19, and it transitions to 20 a little bit, after he's kind of addressed our hearts here, and he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. So this is a pretty bold statement as well. And there's two groups of people that really probably were taken by surprise, right? So he says, for, for I tell you that until your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, you have to imagine the Pharisees and the scribes that are listening are like, whoa, whoa, how do we exceed ourselves? How do we do better than we're already doing? We've upheld the law. We've do this, done all these things. How do we do more? And then you have the other group of people, right? You and I, all the ones that are not the Pharisees and the scribes saying, man, how do we do better than the most religious people here? How does our righteousness, our good deeds do better than them? Because here's what I was told you I'd mention a little bit. Pharisees and scribes, specifically Pharisees, they were taught from an early age as, as a child. They were taught the laws and, the, and, the, and they would recite scriptures and they would sing scriptures. And not only were they taught them, but they had to start living by them. And this was their entire lifestyle. Lifestyle was based on the laws of the Old Testament. And they would live by them. They would know them. They would recite them. And they would tell other people and they would walk through life. And then around the age of 40, they would go through an ordination process. If everybody around them deemed them righteous enough and they said that they upheld the law and they're good enough people, they would ordinate them, they would ordain them, I meant, into this place where they are now Pharisees and scribes. And so my first thought is if I'm sitting in the crowd and I don't know Jesus and I think that he's just talking about this external life that we're going to see, I think, man, these people have lived their entire life to get the authority by man and they're righteous, and if I don't proceed and I don't do better, exceed, sorry, their righteousness, I can't enter into the kingdom of God. Well, I'm 33, and they get ordained at 40. I'm like, I got a lot of catching up to do, right? As many of you, some of you in the room are like, I'm a little older than 40, so I'm a little behind, Jeff, and others. <laughs> so I tell you that this is not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about just living by the spirit of the letter, right? or the, sorry, the letter of the law, Jesus is talking about living by the Spirit, by the letter of the Spirit. He's addressing a real issue here because the religious leaders of the time were becoming very legalistic. It's how we acted, how we presented ourselves, how we held the Scripture, but they were missing the most important aspect, and that was the relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus tells us is this is an external battle versus an internal battle. You must be at a place internally inwardly, your heart has to be fully surrendered to God. Because if we were to say, man, we just have to be so righteous and so perfect and so good, and then we can enter into the kingdom of heaven, that cannot happen with our human sinful nature. None of us could, if we wanted to, earn our way into heaven. But that's also not how it works. Jesus died, so we don't earn our way into heaven. We submit our lives to Christ, and then we receive glory in heaven through that. But this right here, Jesus is speaking inwardly. 
Because Jesus knows, and we know it, even if we don't want to admit it, a lot of us live a lifestyle where we can fake like we're doing well. We can fake like we have the good Christian persona going on. I know that was my story in middle school and high school, and I've told our students that before. If you would have asked anybody around, you would have asked even myself, I would have said I'm a Christian. Why? Because I went to church. We prayed before meals. I tried to do my best. I tried to honor my parents, not because I love Jesus. I was terrified of my father in high school. Did not want to mess up. But I did all of these things. I went to camp. I, I, I tried to be kind. I tried to open doors for people. I tried to make sure that I was always talking well of other people. But I knew that I didn't know Jesus deep down. In fact, I even got baptized without surrendering my life to Jesus because it was just part of who we were in a Christian culture, in a Bible belt, that we did these certain things. But I had never said yes to Jesus. And it wasn't until I got to college and I was around real authentic believers that weren't just external, but they were inwardly loving Jesus authentically every day. And I said, there's something different. And that's when I realized that this is what Jesus is talking about. The religious leaders were very legalistic. Their actions were what drove them. But Jesus is speaking inwardly towards our hearts because Jesus knows if he gets a hold of our hearts, what follows? Our actions, right? Everything will follow that. So, well, let me just go ahead and transition into 21 through 25 so I don't run out of time here. So Jesus had just addressed the hearts and says, it's kind of an action versus heart, external versus internal thing, and I want to get a hold of the internal and that probably speaks volumes to a lot of you right now because that's where you are in life. And then he says, okay, now let's go ahead and start addressing these tough, tough subjects. Verse 21. You have heard, well, let me just read the whole thing. 21 through 26, all about anger. You have heard that it is said to those of the old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with a brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering a gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge of the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly, here it is again, truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid your last penny. So this next text is pretty, pretty important for us to see. And I, and I really think that Jesus could have talked about any subject after it. He talks about how highly he views scripture, his authority, his power, the serious consequences if we aren't obeying and teaching the scripture. Then he addresses our heart and our salvation, essentially, and our relationship with Jesus. And then he could have said anything afterwards, but he goes, let's discuss anger. And I don't think it's by accident that this is the first one that he comes out of. Because we know anger is really the root of most of our sins and a lot of the problems that we see inside of our Christian culture. It's anger, it's bitterness, it's resentment, it's hatred. And when that sets root in our life, we can't have unity as brothers in Christ. And if there's not unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ, then the church begins to crumble. We see that the Christian nation, we see our culture, the ones that are supposed to love Christ begin to be disunified, turn away from one another, and we see the churches close doors. We see Christians not stand up for what God's word tells us. Anger is a real issue, and I believe that's why we jump into it right away. 
And the anger that he's talking about is not just this little bit of frustration or angry because things didn't go our way, because someone said something that hurt our feelings, but this is a, a true, unholy, unrighteous, sinful anger. Now, there's plenty of times in Scripture, and we won't spend time on those today, where God talks about this righteous anger. And that anger is normally directed at sin. That's an okay anger. When you are frustrated, you're angry with the sin you see in the world, and you want to see justice because you love God. But that's not the anger he's talking about. It's this unholy, this unrighteous anger towards a brother and sister in Christ. So he tells us this. One of the books I was reading, one of the theologians said this, and I thought it was great. He said, the condition of your heart is always the source of your actions. The condition of your heart is always the source of your actions. How is it a condition of your heart? For a lot of us, we don't have to spend a ton of time around one another to know the condition of our heart because our actions do it. Because the way we talk about people, the way we treat people begins to come out. The gossip or the slander will come. And so you can immediately see the conditions of the heart. But on the other side, if someone's uplifting, encouraging, talking about their relationship with Jesus, talking about how great it is to see this person, and you're encouraging with your words, you can know the condition of your heart. You're, they're at a place where they're surrendered to Jesus in that. And I'll tell you what, anger is easy to say, but anger is foolish, right? No good ever comes from unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger, and this anger they're talking about is truly foolish, and it makes us become destroyers of one another instead of builders of one another. And I think about that a lot because 1 Thessalonians 5.11, my wife and I, we tell it to our kids, we try to repeat it to our kids. Parents in the room, you know that doesn't mean a whole lot all the time, but we do our best to try to repeat this. We say, your responsibility is to build one another up. Build one another up. This is what the gospel tells us. Build one another up. You cannot build a brother and sister in Christ up if you have anger, bitterness, resentment, hatred, frustration, and disunity with that person. It's impossible because you are separated from God in that moment. You're separated from the truth that you are called to love one another and build one another up. And this is what God is calling us to. This is what we see Jesus speaking about in the Sermon of the Mount. We are called to be builders and not let anger destroy us, destroy this unity that God calls us to. What I love here is there's kind of a stair step. You can see it says, you shall not mur murder. You'll be liable to judgment. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. If you're angry to a brother, you're liable to judgment. If you insult a brother, you're liable to counsel. And then he says, and if you say you're a fool to someone, you're liable to the hell of fire. It went from judgment, judgment, counsel, hell of fire. Like this just stair-stepped its way up there. But it also tells us the importance and the seriousness of this, that we are to deal with these things because if we don't deal with anger, frustration, this resentment, this bitterness in our hearts at an early stage, it's only gonna grow and get rooted deeper in us. And when it does, it eventually pushes us to a place where we're separating ourselves from unity and believers and community and Jesus. Now, I want to say just right here as we see it, that when he says the word fool, he says, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Let me just take that weight off of you. If you've ever said the word fool, you're not going to the hell of fire for that language. I'd be in trouble a long time ago. But that actually word fool that he's speaking on, if you translate it, it's when you're talking about the salvation of other people. If you're trying to address and you're trying to speak and you're trying to tell somebody they're unsaved. They don't know Jesus. They're degenerate. These are some of the words. It actually comes from a Hebrew word that looks very similar to our word moron. 
Now, it's very interesting that that's it, but what Jesus is speaking at is you, when you're talking to someone, if you ever speak for someone's salvation, you are liable to the hell of fire yourself because we don't have a responsibility or a right to speak on the behalf of someone else's salvation. That is for their relationship with the Lord alone. Now, hear me, believers, when I say this, we do have a responsibility to hold each other accountable, right? My wife says it the best. She says, we don't have the responsibility to judge people, but we do have a responsibility to believers to be fruit inspectors, right? To see if they're growing healthy fruits in their life or if they're not growing fruit at all. And then we get to walk with them, encourage them, correct them, love them, stand by them, hand around their shoulder. Sometimes we put the hands in the back a little, but we need some encouragement. But we are not to speak at other people's salvation. We don't cast judgment or shame. We just hold people accountable to what God's word says. Now, here's my favorite part in this entire text. And this will be the last thing we talk about right here. It says in verse 23 through 26. So if you're offering a gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift therefore, sorry, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. And then he talks about coming to terms quickly with your accuser, right? Those first few verses, we see that Jesus uses the words brother, right? He says, so offer your gift at the altar and remember that your br- and you remember that your brother has something against you. This word brother is not necessarily just your flesh and blood. It's not males and males only. This idea that what Jesus is speaking when he says brother is translated to fellow believer, other Christians. So I have a relationship with Jesus. If you in the room or you online have said yes to Jesus, doesn't matter who you are, we are now brothers and sisters in Christ. We're fellow believers. We are a part of a body of believers. And this is what he's saying. So he's addressing this brothers. And he says, so what does he say about it? If you're going to offer a gift at the altar, and before you do, you remember that a brother has something against you. You remember a fellow believer has something against you. You've hurt a fellow believer. You have treated them wrongly. You have anger. You have frustration at a fellow believer. Stop what you're doing. And go make it right with them and then come back to the altar. Such a powerful statement that Jesus encourages us in this moment and really commands us in this moment that if we have something against a brother and sister in Christ, we are to stop immediately what we're doing before we can continue in our relationship or our worship with Jesus. We are to go to them, reconcile, make it right, confess sin, bring unity back between believers, and then... We go worship with the Lord. Do you see the the order of sequence right? Jesus doesn't say just worship until it gets better and hope all goes away. He says, no, you have a real responsibility. Before this anger sets in and the stair step happens and it gets worse and worse and worse and deeper and darker and darker and the unity gets further away, stop what you're doing. Go reconcile to them. Bring unity back into God's house. Bring unity back into the body. And then come before me with a heart full of unity, peace, joy, and let's worship. It's such a powerful moment. And I think, and I believe this, as Christians, it should speak even more to us that God is addressing this anger in our life, this disunity in our life, more than anything. Because as Christians, what is our entire identity based on, right? What is our entire identity as Christians based on? That we were ones 
who were spared of wrath and anger on the cross, right? We deserve all of the anger of God. That would be just because of our sinful nature. We deserve the full wrath of God, but Jesus took our place and God spared us of wrath and anger. So why can we not spare that for believers? Spare other people of your anger. Get right with your brother and sister. Be kind to one another, especially during an election year. Right? We, we don't always see eye to eye. We need to see eye to eye here, but we're going to be different. We're going to have different preferences, different hobbies. And as long as they don't go against God's word, let's love one another and reconcile back to one another. Why? So the whole body is healthy. So we can worship the Lord fully. So we can see God's kingdom grow here on earth. This is what he's addressing. And it's not an easy thing for us. But I want to wrap up with this in just kind of a challenge because what we see right here is he says, you go to the altar or you're going to the altar and you offer, you're going to offer a gift and then you remember that you've wronged somebody, that there is something between you and a brother and sister in Christ. Go and make it right, right? Well, this reference right here isn't an actual go and going to an altar and presenting a gift. It's if you're going to a state of worship is what it's talking about. And this isn't just singing songs and worshiping like we did this morning or like we're going to do here in a little bit. But it's when you are worshiping in any area and you're serving, you're honoring the God, your lifestyle is meant to be worship. And we cannot worship the Lord faithfully and fully if we have anger in our heart, if we have bitterness in our heart. And I would say this addresses anything if there's lust in our heart, if there is hatred for an enemy in our heart. We can't faithfully worship God and love God for all he is and who he is if we have it in our heart. Let's let it go. Surrender it to the feet of Jesus and reconcile with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we get an opportunity to do that, right? Each and every day, but specifically this morning, you get an opportunity to be faithful right now to what God has taught us. That if you're in the room, here in a little bit, when Jeff and the rest of the orchestra and the praise team sing, what I'm going to ask is everybody get up and find all the people you've wronged in this room. We're going to figure it out. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. There are some of you that were like looking around for people right away. We're, this is between you and the Lord and them, obviously. But really, that's what the Lord calls us to, to be about our faith in every area. So if you have somebody, maybe they're in this room, maybe they're online watching, maybe they're in another state. It's a phone call, a text away. Be faithful and begin this reconcile process. It's going to take some humility. It's going to take some self-awareness. But when you begin to walk through this, you're going to see that God's going to unify you. God's going to unify the church. And God's going to continue to grow his kingdom on earth with you because we've been faithful to what God tells us. So let's take this moment as we worship and let's walk through this. And so I don't know what that means for you. If you're sitting, as you're sitting down in your seat or you stand up, if you want to come to the altar and you need to um, just ask for forgiveness, if you need to find somebody in the room, you need to send a text message, or you just want to worship the Lord and continue to have this peace with God, um, I say, let's do so. Let's be faithful to what God has taught us this morning, but not just this morning. Every day, let's be faithful and be reconciled to one another regardless of our difference so we can show unity here on earth so we can be a body of believers that loves God faithfully. Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, it really is such a gift to be able to walk through your scripture. Father, I pray that we take the word of God serious. 
Father, I pray, as Scripture says, that we obey everything that we have been commanded and teach others to do so. Let our lifestyles and let our words be an example of your gospel everywhere we go. Father, I pray for the brother and sister in the room that are at odds, that haven't talked in a while, that are hurting, that we see reconciliation, we see love, we see grace, we see mercy, and it's all because of your gospel. And because of that, we see unity and we see your kingdom here. Father, we love you and we ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to our weekly message podcast. At the end of each worship service on Sunday morning, I offer a simple blessing and I offer that blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and may God grant you peace both now and forever. Amen.